the story has a story to tell. We've got a past already, even though it feels like we're still a new church. And, and today I want to be sure that everybody kind of knows what it is that um, gave rise to the story. And I want people who may not quite even know me yet to know not just who I am today, but who I was not too long ago. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about that in a moment. Every October, we um, set aside the month to prepare ourselves and to plan and strategize for the year ahead. And this year is more important than ever that we do that because it's such an unprecedented, wonky year. Like, we, we aren't sure what is waiting us in, in 2021. And so now it's more important than ever that we pull together as one community and to walk together in faith. And so one of the ways that we do that in October every year is by um, looking at our own finances, our own plans for the year ahead, and we make commitments. We estimate what we think our giving will be in 2021 and, or in the year ahead, and we make that known so that our church can plan and be strategic and smart as we look ahead uh, to 2021. And so this is the time to do that. And I know you all have gotten those in person. You've gotten those in the mail. You can also submit them electronically. Um, the links are going to be in the comment section wherever you're watching, YouTube, Facebook, or on our website. Um, or you can also, if you're here today, drop them in the boxes that are on the walls here, the white lock boxes. That, that's a safe way to do that as well. However you do that, I just want to thank you in advance. It helps your church to be good stewards as we look ahead to what's coming. I think even bigger things are coming in 2021 than we've seen in 2020 or any year before it. I think God has us here to do something unique and special, not just for us or not just because we have, you know, a a team of staff that are talented, and we do our media team and worship team. We got all kinds of talented people. It's not even about that. There's a message here that God wants the world to know about. That church isn't what they think it is, that He isn't who they've heard He is, that there's something so much better. And I think God has called us out just for this reason. You know, um, in the spring of 2000, which to me seems like not long ago, but I know there are kids in the room going, before I was born. Okay, all right, spare me. But in the spring of 2000, my junior year of college, I decided I didn't believe in God. The God I grew up with, the God I grew up hearing about every week in church, I realized that my faith to that point wasn't really faith at all. It was just a cultural reality. It was what I was told to believe. And I had never really internalized that for myself. I had never really surrendered my life to Jesus. That's a dramatic thing to do surrender your life to Jesus. I'd never done that. And I was getting all kinds of messages in college that that was ridiculous in the first place, and so I just left it. And I spent 13 years of my life in Kansas City rejecting God, ignoring God, disparaging His Word, making fun of His people. Really, the evangelical white Western Christian prototype was like the bane of my existence. I was a smart aleck. I was stubborn. I was angry. I was, I was living in darkness in all kinds of ways that I could tell you about. Like, I, I was not in a good place. And I took every opportunity that I could to slander God for 13 years. But I look back and I realize that even during that time of my life, God kept me in his orbit. Because even when you don't know God, God knows you. 
And he knew where my heart was at. I wasn't all, I wasn't rotten to the core. I still had some good in me. I had some good desires and some good dreams. He knew that I care about the poor. And so he gave me opportunities to serve the homeless through different churches in Kansas City. He knew that I care about urban youth that are at a disadvantage culturally, societally. And so he gave me opportunities to serve urban youth for years in various churches in Kansas City. He knew that I cared about disenfranchised people like undocumented immigrants. And so he gave me opportunities for 13 years, even as I disparaged him. He gave me opportunities to serve him. He kept me in his orbit. Have you ever been kept in God's orbit? By his grace, even as you fled him, he chased you, that kind of thing. He did that for me for 13 years. And you all know what happened. Most of you know. I won't, I won't bore you with the details again. February 2013, my first trip to the Holy Land, everything changed. A literal come-to-Jesus meeting in Capernaum. Everything changed. My heart was wrecked. My priorities were changed. I could not be the same. I came home to Kansas City. My wife and I, we both knew that we couldn't stay in Kansas City any longer. I had built my persona, my identity around that angry, entitled, bitter person that I was. Everybody who knew me knew me for being that kind of political activist guy who said that, you know, I just felt like I couldn't, I couldn't be who Jesus wanted me to be and stay in Kansas City. It was going to be too hard. A prophet's never welcome in their hometown, that kind of thing, you know. I knew we had to have a fresh start. And so we started looking for opportunities to serve God in other cities. And so we actually pursued opportunities. In 2013, as soon as I got home, opportunities in Portland, in Denver, in Chicago, Nashville. Nashville stole my heart, y'all. I still think about it sometimes. I, I know, I know. I love it. I, I'm sorry. But we prayed, you know, God, we will go wherever you send us, just not Houston, God. <laughs> and so, the, of course, the next day, St. Luke's calls, and, uh, and they're like, uh, we've got this opportunity. Are you interested? And, and we were interested. And, and the more we heard about the opportunity to start something new here in Houston, the more excited we got. We had phone interviews that went well. They flew us down for in-person interviews. And after a round of in-person interviews, we thought it was in the bag. We thought we nailed it. And we were high-fiving each other. We were shopping for apartments in Houston. And we were like telling my family in Texas we're coming back home. They were all excited. And a month after that, I got a phone call in which I learned that I'd been rejected for this job, turned down. And it wasn't even that they had found someone better. That I could have taken. But they just decided I was unfit for this job. That hurt. As it turns out, what I learned later, I didn't learn this right away, and that's part of what made this process so hard for me, but I learned later it had to do with some profanity-laced tweets from my prior life before Jesus. Kids, watch your Twitter feeds when you're applying for jobs. <laughs> that's what it was, and that's why I was unfit for the job. Y'all, I was devastated because I thought, hey, God, you've got me now. You're welcome. I'm here. And then God's just like, forget you, never mind. I felt like rejected, heartbroken over this. It took some time. But what I've realized since then, and, and the more I know God, the more I love him, the, the more I learn to trust his timing, because his timing is always perfect. God's like Gandalf. He's never late. He's just on time. Always on time. 
His time is so much better than ours. And had it been 2013 when I was moving to Houston to plant this thing, this thing would not be what it is today. I was not ready. I had just become a Christian months before. I needed to detox. I needed to unlearn some of the things I had learned for those 13 years living in darkness. I needed to do some reading, some good reading that I had never really been exposed to, some good Christian thinkers with great ideas. I needed that year. I just didn't know that I needed it. But a year later, St. Luke's called back after a year of searching for someone, anyone better. (laughs) They settled. (laughs) They settled for me. And here I am. We packed up that, packed up that U-Haul, packed up our kids who were six and four at the time. And now they're both taller than their mama. Six and a half years ago, and we drove that U-Haul south from Kansas City to Houston. And uh, about six months after that, six years to the day tomorrow, October 19th, 2014, the story held our first public event at a bar called the Armadillo Palace (laughs) on Kirby. Only a few of you were there to experience our first public event. It was really something. (laughs) And then a month after that, we held our second public event at the Bingo Hall in the Heights. And then the, the month after that, December, we were supposed to hold our third public event. But I dropped the ball on the details and the venue fell through. <laughs> and it was a disaster. That was like Christmas time, our first Christmas season in 2014. And I messed up. And it was really a fiasco. And it was just the first of many major mistakes that I would go on to make. As the leader of the story, I could tell you about every single one. I've lost sleep over every single one. Like when we launched in February of 2015, we came, became official in February 2015, we decided we weren't going to be like those other churches with their like McDonald's-like playgrounds where the parents just drop their kids off before church and pick them up after. We were going to be a church that takes Jesus seriously. The family was going to worship him all together here because kids need Jesus too. They shouldn't just be dropped off. Well, about three months into our launch, we realized we weren't retaining families like we expected to. (laughs) Apparently, it's a pretty big incentive to drop your kids off for an hour (laughs) when you come to church. (laughs) And so we flexed a little bit on that whole rigid rule we made. And as it turns out, kids grow better when they have kid-appropriate programming anyway. And so do parents, (laughs) as it turns out. So we, we flexed on that mistake. The first website that we ever made, it was in 2015 as well. And I remember one quote that we put front and center on the website. This church is different. No boredom, no judgment, no light shows, no fog machines. Three weeks later, <laughs> we had light shows and fog machines. But <laughs> we don't call them fog machines. We call it atmosphere. because it sounds a little better than fog machines. So if you see fog in the air, just tell yourself, that's atmosphere. And it's supposed to look like heaven will look and that kind of thing. And that's another thing we had to flex on. 2017, we hosted a barbecue social, like a fundraiser to support a sister ministry that was um, uh, fighting human trafficking. It's always been a an issue near and dear to our hearts. And so we hosted this barbecue and we made up some banners, but everybody that showed up to the event was very surprised when they came and saw the signs hanging everywhere that said barbecue dinner in support of human trafficking. That's a different event. That's a whole different event. <laughs> um, 
We were missing a couple words on that sign. <sighs> Details are not my strong suit. Uh, in 2017 and 2018, I preached a sermon about pornography, and in it, I challenged all the men in the room to ask themselves one question, but the visual created by that day and the screenshots people took that will live in infamy told a different story. They looked like I was just confessing something, like maybe I was wondering if they thought <laughs> that about me. Um, and in retrospect, another mistake. And I could tell you about dozens more <laughs> mistakes and mishaps and missteps, but you know that for every single one, I could also tell you about a hundred gifts and graces. A hundred times God showed up. A hundred times he came through, not because of us, but in spite of us. A hundred times for every one mistake that he's made it work, that he's made it grow, that he's sent the message out. And I kind of wanted to give you those of you that support and love this church, I wanted to give you some idea of that because you just come and you hear the message and you support the church and all that. You don't always get to see what I see, the messages that come through, the testimonies people tell about the ways this church has touched their lives by the grace of God. Like this guy named Jason who wrote me an email back right after we launched in 2015. And, and Jason said this about, about the story of, he said, I moved away from church and from God dramatically since college for several reasons, like the divide between science and faith, or my doubts about the historical accuracy of the Bible, or the idea that it was written or inspired by God at all. Your take on faith and Christianity is the most honest and refreshing approach I've ever been exposed to. For the first time in a long time, I get the message. I'm not saying I've turned around my belief system, but you've opened my eyes to it. And I'm all in on the story. Or this young woman, Lauren, from Tennessee, she wrote in 2019, she said, I'm from Signal Mountain, Tennessee. I just want to let you know that I've enjoyed listening to the story almost every day while I run. I've uh, watched some amazing sunrises while listening to some of your sermons. I've grown in my faith so much, I can't stop sharing with everyone I know. And that includes the hair salon where I work. You can only imagine how many ears I speak to a day. Lauren, I grew up in a hair salon. My mom cut hair my whole life. I know exactly what you mean. That's evangelism is what that's called. <laughs> you can only imagine, she says. My whole family has enjoyed listening to the Maybe God podcast, including my sister who has many, many, many questions about God. Just wanted you to know how far your church is reaching. The story is part of my life now and hopefully a part of so many others here in the greater Chattanooga area. <laughs> I don't know why that cracks me up every time I read the greater Chattanooga area, but we're there, baby, we're there. All right. And then there's my favorite kind of email to get. This one is from Pastor David Hill of Church Under the Bridge. He wrote, good morning, pastors Eric and Gio, and everyone at the story. Thank you. Thank you so very, very much for your generous offering of $5,000 you just received in the mail. It's so needed. Man. And all of it will be used to rescue the homeless in Houston. We consider it an honor to serve God in the streets of Houston with all of you. You all are so faithful. 
He sends an email like that every time we send him a check. Every time we send him a team, every time we send him food, we get an email like that. Y'all don't get to see it. I do, and I feel a little selfish. I wanted you to know I agree with David. You all are so faithful. But God, but God is even more faithful than all of us put together. God is faithful, and he's shown it again and again. How else in the world could we explain a church like this one? How else could we explain God taking a former angry atheist who had a problem with pornography and all kinds of other darkness for 13 years, who was rejected by his hiring committee to start a church and then proceeded to make this church grow. God did one person at a time. Even as the pastor that he chose made one mistake after another, God grew up the most beautiful, most faithful, most generous church I've ever been a part of. How does that happen? It doesn't happen in the real world. It happens with God because what seems impossible for man is possible for God. Nothing is impossible with God. That's our theme for today as we continue this series called Elect Jesus. And we are looking at the platform of the most effective candidate in history during this election season. Now, he won't be on the ballot. He's not a political force. He wouldn't be elected as a Democrat or as a Republican in 2020 America, I promise you. So you won't be able to make him your president next month, but you can make him your king today. You can make him your king today. And nothing would give his heart more joy than to know you in that way. Jesus is the one who said, with God, all things are popular. Or possible, not popular. Possible. Uh, another mistake. In uh, Matthew 19, a young man came up to Jesus with questions, just like young men come here all the time with questions. And he asked uh, a, a question. I hear a version of this all the time. What, what good thing do I need to do to be saved? It's a decent question. He wanted to be saved. How much do I have to do? How many Sundays a month do I have to give up? How much of my money this year do I need to give in order to get there? What's enough? Jesus told him, basically, follow the Ten Commandments. And that wasn't a satisfactory answer because this is what the guy said. All these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give give the proceeds to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. And then Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I tell you, it's hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. There's a few important things I want to teach on this passage, because this is probably one that even non-Christians have heard about, even unbelievers are vaguely familiar with the rich young ruler story. But there's a lot of misunderstandings. For example, like I hear this kind of trope in society that if Christians have money, then they're hypocritical by nature. But just having money, it's hypocritical because Jesus told Christians to sell all they have and give it away to the poor. I understand the sentiment behind that. There are hypocritical Christians. There are hypocritical rich Christians. But this is not a blanket rule. Jesus said this thing one time. 
Jesus said, sell everything you have and give the proceeds to the poor to one guy in his whole ministry. All right, so it's not like this dramatic action is a requisite to join his movement, okay? So some of us should breathe a little easy. Now, I will offer this caveat, which is if you find that to be an enormous relief, then you might be the guy, <laughs> all right? So if that comes as too much of a relief to you, like, whoo, I can be a Christian now, like, just know you might have been that guy. And I think there's more of that guy today than there were in Jesus's world, just because wealth and possessions and, and excess is a bigger deal for more people today than it was in Jesus's world. I know it is for me, all right? Uh, I, I know that the love of money can, can be a, a massive struggle for me today. So Jesus might say it to me too. That's the first thing I want to say. Second thing that I want to say is that there are two parts to Jesus's mandate here. And we often hear people talk about the first one, sell all you have and give the proceeds to the poor. Then Jesus said, sell all you have, proceeds to the poor, and come follow me. And so what I want to say here is that it would have been possible for this guy, just like it's possible for any of us, to become superficially generous and for nothing to change. It's possible for, for someone to give everything away and not follow Jesus, not surrender their heart to him, and then they're no better for it. This guy could have done that, and, and he would have been the same guy. But except before he met Jesus, he was rich and unfulfilled, and afterward, he just would have been poor and unfulfilled because it was about following him, surrendering your life to him, right? That was the end game. If anything, it was more important. Because the first thing was just standing in the way of the real thing. So, so following Jesus is, is the thing. And, and the love of money was just the thing that was getting in the way. The third thing I want to say about this passage uh, briefly is that you may have heard there was like a gate in Jerusalem that was the shape of a needle eye. And that camels, it was really small, so camels had to like duck to get through it. Okay, there wasn't a gate like that, and camels didn't have to, like, punch down. Like, that's a funny image, but that's just a myth. I don't know where that came from, but it showed up around 1000 AD. That was the first time it appeared in Christian tradition. So what Jesus is doing here is he's making a point, like he often does with hyperbole. He's taking the largest common animal, the largest animal in everyday life, and he's talking about the smallest, like, opening in everyday life, the eye of a needle, and he's saying a rich person getting into the kingdom of God is like that. And the disciples didn't like that at all, which is interesting because most of them were not rich guys. A few of them were. FYI, they weren't all like homeless dudes couch surfing. A few of them had some cash. But they didn't, they didn't like this teaching at all. And this was their response. This is Matthew 19, 25 and 26. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? If the rich guy, who we've all been trying to be like our whole lives, who's following the Ten Commandments to perfection, like if he can't be saved, and what hope is there for any of us? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. One thing I realized this week is that this idea, the impossibility, of, of the seemingly, uh, you know, difficult for man, it, it, but the possible of you know, being possible with God. Like this is throughout scripture. Old Testament, New Testament, God's always saying this. 
So when Sarah was in her old age and she was supposed to bear a child that would, you know, be the father of many nations and all this stuff and they were going to be remembered forever, but she was old and past her time and, and she didn't have any kids. She was barren her whole life and the angel visited her and said, nothing is impossible for God. And again and again through the prophets, God told the people, nothing will be impossible. Keep the faith, hold on through the darkness Nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is too hard for God. Paul picked up on this in the New Testament when he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The angel who came to visit Mary to tell her she was pregnant with God's child, the child of promise, said nothing is impossible for God. Maybe my favorite example of what I'm telling you is it's not in the Old Testament. As I tell you the story, I just want you to Remember what I always say is if something's repeated in Scripture, it must be important. And it must be the case that the people constantly forgot about the power of God and the power that's at our disposal when we put our faith in God. Because what is possible for God is possible for those who put their faith in God, for those who pray in faith, We have all the power that God has when we pray in faith. That's what scripture says. You can take it or leave it, but God's saying this again and again. One of the times he sends this message is through the prophet Jeremiah. And this is during one of Israel's darkest times. God called out Jeremiah to speak to his people as the city of Jerusalem was being flattened, raised to the ground by the Babylonian armies. And the temple itself, the Holy of Holies, was destroyed, desecrated. People were killed. Thousands of people were killed. Thousands more were exiled. It was a devastating time. And God comes to Jeremiah and says, I want you to go to the people of Israel during this dark, dark time. And I want you to buy a piece of land. Seems to me like a strange request, given the circumstances. I'm guessing that land acquisition was not one of Jeremiah's priorities, given that half his family was now living in Babylon and and loved ones were dead and the Babylonians were raping and pillaging at will. I'm guessing he wasn't thinking about investing in a farm, especially given the fact that this land God wanted Jeremiah to buy was occupied by the Babylonians. So why, God? I can only imagine Jeremiah's response. Why buy land? Why not do something worthwhile right now? But it wasn't about the land. It was about the message God was sending. We get a a sense of this in, in Jeremiah 32, verses 13 to 17, where Jeremiah said, I gave Baruch these instructions. Baruch was a a high-level priest in Israel. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so that they will last a long time. For houses, fields, and vineyards will be bought again in this land. I pray to the Lord, sovereign Lord, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power. You made all this. Nothing is too hard for you. And his prayer is like a proclamation of faith. It's a reminder of God's power. Wait, wait, wait. We feel lost. We feel defeated. We are occupied by an enemy. But God, you made this. There's nothing you can't do. Of course your people will come home again. 
Of course there will be better days again. Of course people will buy and sell again here in this land that you have promised us. It wasn't about the land. It was about the promise. It was about holding on during times of hopelessness. It was about the people of God continuing to believe that everything is possible with God. That's why Jeremiah said this. That's why God told him to buy that land as if Babylon never existed in the first place. Buy that land as if life will go back to normal, as if God sees us in our pain. Send a message to the people that God is not done. Jeremiah knew what Jesus knew, that nothing is impossible with God. I don't know what 2020 has brought you. I know there's pain. I know there's uncertainty. I know for some, our sinful habits and patterns have gotten deeper. I know for some of us, there's financial stress. I don't know what darkness or fear you're facing, but I know what I've seen for the past six years. I know what God has shown me here. I know that I have seen the unlikeliest characters enter the kingdom of heaven. I know that I've seen people who've fallen in love with money their whole lives enter the kingdom of God. I know that I've seen the richest of the rich and the poorest of the poor coming to know God here. I know that I've seen for the last six years, oil and gas magnates worshiping Jesus next to ex-cons recently released from prison. I know that I've seen Republicans and Democrats falling in love with each other here. Where else does that happen? Nothing is impossible with God. I know that I've seen God take a reject preacher who hated him for 13 years and build the world's most beautiful church. Not building church. Community. Never seen such faithfulness and generosity up close. I know what I've seen. The hardest of hearts softened. The most hopeless marriages restored the most hopeless addicts coming clean. I've seen it. Every day in the church of Jesus Christ, God does the impossible. Men can't make camels fit through the eyes of needles, but God can and he does. Early last year, at the end of a service, a young woman, a junior in high school at the time, came up to me after the service right over there. And she wanted to introduce herself. She was new to the story. And as she started in, she was crying so hard she could barely speak. And I said, my dear, what's wrong? And she said, nothing. <laughs> Nothing's wrong. That's why I'm crying. <laughs> because for the first time, ever since I came here, nothing's wrong in my life. Nothing's wrong with me. And she wept. And I wept a little. God can do the impossible and he does it all the time. Maybe he's doing it with you right now. Maybe you've forgotten that promise and your prayer needs to be what Jeremiah said. Nothing is too hard for you, God. Whatever the case, I'm grateful to share in this journey with you. And I wanted to say thank you, not just to you, but I wanted to say thank you to God in front of you. Because it's by his grace alone that we are here today as a church growing 
from greater Houston, Texas to greater Chattanooga, Tennessee and beyond. It is a beautiful thing. So thank you this month for getting your cards in, making your commitment known. I pray that God leads you in that process and that he leads us all to invest in what really matters in this life. Would you pray with me? Jesus, help us to see what you came to show us that even when things seem dark and hopeless and lost, no one is too far from you. No one is too far gone. Even when we reject you or hate you or disparage you or despise you, you keep us in your orbit just close enough to draw us in when we're ready. And you're ready, God, to do miracles with us. You're ready to raise up a hope when all hope seemed lost. You're ready to shine a light in the deepest darkness. You're ready. God, I pray that we're ready too. As we look ahead to 2021, Lord, we know you're going to call us to advance, not retreat, but to occupy more space in the enemy's territory, to share and extend your message further than we ever have before, because you want your people, all your people to know that when all hope seems lost, there's reason to hold on, because what's impossible for man is possible with you. We thank you, Father, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.